Hi, thanks for joining us. I'm Jen Winkleman. This next pocket of time is going to be dedicated to the healing art of storytelling. I've been working in the mental health field for the better part of the last two decades, and in that time, because of my work, I've had the great privilege of hearing countless stories. I hear stories that leave me at the end of the day filled with awe about the resilience of the human spirit. And I get to hear stories about those surprising moments when love steps in to save the day at the very last moment. And I hear stories about the true grit it sometimes takes to survive the human experience. I learn something about life and humanity from all of these stories, and I want to be able to share what I've learned. But because of the part that I play in my community, I'm meant to be a keeper of those narratives. It's important that I maintain privacy and confidentiality for the families that I serve. And so those stories have to stay inside the four walls of my counseling office and are held by those sacred moments where one person tells their truth and another person bears witness to it. And in this, there's some sort of magic that we co-create that leads to healing. But this has me thinking that the reach for healing could be bigger. So I decided that outside the counseling office and on a larger scale, we needed a forum for storytelling. We need to get back to the root of taking the time to listen to each other's experiences and to begin to draw from them. So today, our guest and I will have an unscripted conversation, apart from the questions that we routinely ask to get into it. And then you and I will have the opportunity to learn a bit from his or her experience. In every case, there is value and something that we can borrow for our own lives. Because behind every face, there is a story. And in every story, there are life lessons begging to be learned. So as we listen along today, it's up to us to find the lesson in the story. And then if you and I so choose, we can catch that truth like a firefly in a jar and use it as light on our own paths. Thanks again for being with us. This is all I know. Our guest today is Diana. Diana, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So we're going to do our first four anchor questions that just sort of set up the conversation. Great. So first one, who are you? What is it that our listeners need to know about you to make the most out of our conversation today? So I'm Diana Smith. I love to say that I was born in Barbados since I just returned there for the first time at 40 last year. I'm an honest, an artist. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a woman. I'm a creative, I'm a thinker, Mm. and I'm a dancer. I didn't know you were a dancer. Mm -hmm. That's new information. Yes, I dance in my living room all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So it's kind of the Meredith Grey variety of dance. It is, dance. it is, it is, it's dancing in the, uh, in the rest, in the restaurant, you know, trying to figure out what I'm going to have to eat and listening to the beat. And yeah, I like that. Yeah. In the car. And what a fun fact about Diana, things you never knew. Mm-hmm. How do you define success? Oh, um, I define success as having an alignment of our outside world and our inner world 
that makes them feel like they're cohesive, mm-hmm. like they're dancing mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Um, success, I think for me, is where I'm going to steal a phrase and then paraphrase it uh, from Cheryl Strayed, who wrote the book Wild. Yeah. And I think she said it so perfectly. She said that the older that she gets, the more that success for her means that the who she is on the inside and who she is on the outside aren't so different. They're the same person. And so I think success is feeling at home in your own skin and then having a place to live that out. A third anchor question. Okay. Uh, when we look at that spectrum of ordinary to extraordinary and you think about where to plot your life on that spectrum Mm. do you see your life as as rather ordinary or is it all the way up to extraordinary Mm. and why interesting question i think coming from the backgrounds in the life that i have i think more of my storyline has happened towards the extraordinary side I've tended to have experiences that other people within my community and my context and my background have not done or had or experienced. Like what? Can you give us a a Hmm. small handful so that we know? Yeah. um, So school, I didn't just go to one after high school. I went to three. I had multiple different degrees and very extremely different degrees. Fields of study were variable. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and throughout my career, uh, you know, right now it's not so, it's not so strange, but when, when we were coming into the workforce, you picked a career and then you stayed with it. Right. And I, uh, I was really looking for the right fit. And so I kept kind of outgrowing positions while I was looking for kind of that ultimate one. And so I, I hopped around a lot. I've done consulting, I've done photography, I've done dance instruction, um, and um, just run the gamut of it. I've done a lot of international travel, which um, some people in my just cultural context um, didn't really travel. Mm-hmm. And so um, while I feel very ordinary, I think some of the, the stories and the trappings of my life would fall in the extraordinary category really? as well. The way you said that, I feel ordinary, but. <laughs> but. Yeah. Yeah. But with a capital B. So um, that fourth question then, which will take us where we're going for the rest of our time together. Yeah. What would you say are three events, circumstances, themes that have occurred in your life that you think have most shaped who you are? Hmm. Okay. Well, I think, um, the one that's most top of mind and it could be because of its proximity to, to where I am now is Barbados Hmm. being born in another country and always known, knowing that I was born in another country. Um, going back to that feeling ordinary thing. I remember so many instances of going through school. You were there, Mm. which is so fun. Um, going through school and feeling so ordinary, just feeling so regular lost in the crowd and really not having anything remarkable about me. And yet when it came to that question, where were you born? I had a really interesting answer. 
And it was always, it, it was interesting to everybody that I was born in Barbados. And so it was like this little, it was this little thing that I had that set me apart in what, what was considered a really cool way. But I think it also had, I think it, I think it also had some deeper bearing on my story and the way that I have an outlook on the world. Knowing that I had been born in another country, already the world is opened to me. Even though we didn't do a lot of travel as a family, I didn't leave the United States until I was 21. I always knew that there was this wider world, yeah. and I had already been in it, even though I didn't have memories of it. Right. Uh, we left Barbados when I was very young. So I have, no, um, I have no mental memory of it, but I think I still have some visceral body memory of it. Um, and, you know, it's kind of been a joke among our family that I love to go barefoot. I love warm weather. I love <laughs> the ocean. And we've, we've always joked, well, you know, you were born on In a tropical Barbados. island. So, yeah, so um, but going back there uh, last year for the first time and experiencing it. And, um, and I went with a good friend and, and even besides my experience of being in that place, my friend who went with me at some point, she looked at me and she said, you know, you make a lot more sense <laughs> being really? here with you. Yes. Wow. Yeah. I know. What a mirror to have held up. Right. Really cool and funny and quirky. Now I don't know what she meant by that. So I should probably <laughs> ask her. Um, but, um, but I think there was probably, I think there was more to that. I think there was, there has been more of an impact to having been born on that island than I even fully recognize. Mm -hmm. I think I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of what that might have done for me. Um, so another event shaped my life. Uh, Africa was... Here, here. Another. Here's that. How can it I don't not? even know where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> that we could probably, probably really just leave it right there. That's right. Uh, going oh, to man. Africa. Um, so, uh, again, I was 21 when I... Uh, it's your first trip out of the U.S.? My first trip out was of to the, the U.S. Dark continent. Yes, was wow. to Uganda and wow. uh, South Africa. Incredible. Just might as well jump in with both feet, just go all in. And that was the way that that situation and circumstance worked out. And what a way to break open international travel. Oh my goodness. Well, um, you know, we were talking before this about Africa and what sparked it for you, what, mm. what sparked the interest for you to go. And you had even said, well, I was always intrigued by it. I was always interested mm -hmm. by it. And I don't it's a mysterious place. Yeah. It's an oh, a mysterious and exotic and place way out there mm -hmm. uh, for those of us in the States. And, um, I think, um, I didn't realize until I went how much Africa had a storyline in my life already and how interested I was in it before long before I ever went. Um, I used to play African safari as a little kid. That is so cool. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I'm totally into it. I did well, not know that, and I love not, it. Not, I mean, it was kind of weird to my friends who wanted to, you know, play house and dress up. And you I'm were like, born in Barbados, of course. You're on African <laughs> safari as a child. Right. You're pretend play. Uh, yeah, I want to be Indiana Jones. 
but the female version. Um, so it was really cool, and it was uh, it it just blew my mind to be able to go. And and I had this one arriving in Uganda. I had this very brief moment sitting in the the. They call it a, a taxi. It's a matatu. It's like a big van. It's a 15-passenger van. Where you're on top of each other. <clears throat> yes. Packed to the gills. <clears throat> it's, very, it's very bumpy. And um, so we're in the van. We're driving from Entebbe Airport to Kampala, where we're staying. And there is this briefest moment where we're in the van and I'm looking out the window and there's nothing but undeveloped Africa. So there's trees and there's banana trees and there's dirt road and maybe an occasional human being walking down the road and that's it. And I suddenly have this moment of terror that I realize, oh my God, I am halfway around the world. I could die right here. <laughs> Nobody would know. <laughs> and it was that shock of being so far away and so disconnected. Yes. And it lasted for maybe a minute. And suddenly, like a snap of the fingers, it stopped. It went away instantaneously. And I thought, I love this. You were thrilled. I felt so at ease. I felt so suddenly and totally and completely comfortable in that country like I had almost never felt before. And and I think what that also did just <clears throat> just as a byproduct is I think it opened me up to the experience so much more uh, because I wasn't afraid. I just had an open-heartedness to the experience that allowed more of that experience in. And so being in another country, being in a totally different culture, talking with people, thank goodness we had language in common. They mm. spoke English so that we could share stories with one another. Mm -hmm. We could understand each other's past, present, future dreams, pictures, ideas, um, eating different food. Just everything being different and being okay in that different place, being welcomed by other human beings in that place. Yeah. Seeing the resilience of people who live in what we would call poverty and recognizing a poverty of our own, um, it just, it completely blew my worldview wide open. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the world. Yeah. So that was kind of big. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that I, just changed everything. No, I, yeah, I, I'm like resonating so much with everything that you're saying. And I, and it, it's interesting. I, I want to keep the conversation about you, but it's interesting because mm -hmm. I'm noticing in myself, I want to be like, yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I'm wanting to weasel yeah. my stories in there too, because it strikes that chord. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Beautiful Africa. Mm-hmm. Well, and that accord is the perfect word, right? Because there, there's a resonance, there's a music to that experience that I think a lot of people share. And so how can we not feel that? Yeah. We hear those stories. There's something about, um, oh, you'll probably remember because we grew up on Paul Simon's Graceland album. Oh, totally. But African Skies. Yeah. So that mm -hmm. lyric, um, this is the music of how we begin to remember. Yeah. It's like, 
Yeah. I think you it's don't, the story. This is the story this of how we begin story to remember. Of, like, what's the line? He says something about music. Oh, anyway, it doesn't matter. But there, there is something about that song mm. that you understand yeah. so differently after coming back. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. You know, Beats. where I loved okay. that song growing up. I thought it was great. I but then too. now, you know, 30 years later, it's like, oh my gosh, he knew exactly what he was talking about. He did. He, Paul Simon was brilliant on that album because he picked up, I think this is part of his gift too, is that he picks up the rhythm of those places. Well, and he brought the idea of world music onto the scene in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So, anyway. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so that's our digress. music break. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Thank you, Paul Simon. So, birth in Barbados. <clears throat> birth. Africa. Africa. Um, hmm, uh, there are so many. That's a really tough question. Um can you ask me the question one more time so it's fresh? Yeah, it's just the idea of three events, themes, experiences that you feel have most shaped who you are. Hmm. I think, okay, well, there's so, there's so many, right, that we could latch on to. Um, reading would have to be another one. And now that, that isn't a specific event, it's a theme. It's a theme that has run through a lot of most of my life. I wanted to read before I could read, uh, before I even went into school, before we even started school. Uh, I was so young and I was just, I was thirsty to be able to read. I was already fascinated by words. I was fascinated by what was held in books that people could open this book and then they'd be absorbed in it. And I wanted to know what What's in that? <laughs> what is that? They can know something Whoa. new. Yeah. Um, and so I've always been a great reader. Um, I don't know why I said great. I've always been a constant reader. And, um, and I took a hiatus for a while because I had this idea planted in my head um, as an adult that I wasn't a reader. I wasn't like all of my friends who studied literature in college. I wasn't um, official enough. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. My mom is a great reader. She devours books. Um, and I, I didn't devour them in the same way. Certainly not at the same speed. Uh, and so I think I, I just went through this period where I left books behind. And then when I came back to them, I suddenly realized just how, how much they were really food for the soul. So I have great memories of books. With, um, I don't have any idea where this question is coming from, but it popped mm -hmm. up, so I'm going to ask it. Do it. With the way that technology has changed, mm -hmm. and particularly the era that we grew up in, I mean, we, mm -hmm. I think we are the generation that transitioned from paper and pencil yes. and hardbound books yeah. and brown paper bags covering yes. your books at school. Which were so fun, because then you could draw all over, over them. them. Yes. Decorate. Thank stickers, God. Because what else are you going to do in markers. science class? <laughs> But our generation really saw that transition from paper yeah. and pencil mm -hmm. to digital computer. 
Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about reading and you talk about books, has your um, consumption mm. of written material changed with technology or are you still a paper girl? Mm, great question. It has changed in that I read more and I do both. So I love the feel of paper Meat. in my hands. <laughs> Me too. I love it's something it. about Gen Xers. I don't know because I'm yeah. telling you. Yeah. Yeah. Having just the, the texture, the feel of it is important to me. Mm-hmm. If you get one that bends in the right way, you know, a paperback mm-hmm. that just, mm, there's just something <laughs> about so it. Yeah. Uh, I also love marking up books. So I love to write in them. There's something... It's not the same to highlight on a Kindle. No. It's just not. There's like... It's still a rebellious act to me to write in a book, and I love it. Because it's almost like you're interacting with it in a totally different way. However, I also love the digital format, and I love my Kindle. What I find is that I have different books on them. So I love... I love my Kindle because you can highlight, but also because of the dictionary feature. Mm. And I, I'm, I love words. And so I love digging into words and the etymology of words and what are similar words. And so I love being able just to stop right there and pull out a dictionary without having to actually flip through a dictionary. But you love paper. I do love paper <laughs> in moderation. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but I am also a collector of words and so the Kindle makes it easy you know with the highlight feature you can copy and paste all of your highlights and I will do that every time I read a book I'll then copy and paste all of the highlights into an Evernote file and that is my collection and that that is my happy place that's my grounding place so every morning when I read I'm reading poetry in Evernote and Uh, You're going back to things you've read before. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I actually have, um, it's a, it's a very recent practice for me, but I've begun reading poems as a form of prayer in the morning. And so I have seven poems and I read them. They have, they're assigned for each day of the week and, uh, they're in Evernote. And so Evernote is kind of that place that I go to recenter, to dip back into messages and themes and voices. That struck you before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So birth in Barbados, <laughs> Africa. Yeah. Books and reading. Yeah. If we are going to drill down on one of those and draw it out mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, suck the marrow out of love it one of those dead poet society all the way sound your barbaric (laughs) yaw which which one of those do you want to tell us more about and share more well let's go with africa okay so last you told us about africa Mm -hmm. you were going from entebbe to impala yeah and kampala yeah uh, tell us more about Africa after that moment that you were just sort of shaken to this mm. place of comfort and mm-hmm. falling in love with the world. What happened yeah, next? Yeah, yeah. A lot. The, that experience was beautiful. I could tell a hundred stories 
of the two weeks that I spent in Uganda. And then after those two weeks, I went with one of the women in our group to South Africa and spent another two weeks there. So I was gone for a month total. I think the really important thread of all of that is, is how that opened up my worldview. And, and I mean how in both ways, what it did specifically to do that, and then how my worldview changed as a result. Because we were, there was so much that happened in that, in that trip, but they were, there were some really key things that happened that made such an impression. We were with, um, we had the opportunity to go to the U.S. Embassy in Uganda. Oh, wow. For a special what an tour. experience. So cool. Yeah. And so one of the women in our group had a connection there. So they set up this private tour for us to go through the embassy, which is so cool and remarkable. Well, it just seems like... Uh, it just seems like an inaccessible place, hmm. which is interesting hmm. because it's the U.S. Embassy. Yeah. It's a U.S. citizen. You would think <laughs> it, it would be, be welcome yeah. there. But there is something about the idea of of an embassy in a foreign country that feels like you yeah. don't get beyond the gate unless there's like hmm. big trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't think, oh, I'm going to go to this foreign country and visit the U.S. Embassy. No. Right. So we were really excited to go see it and we're... It is really cool to be inside of that building, to be seeing both local Ugandan employees, to be seeing Americans there. Side by side working. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I think we had been there long enough that it was strange to see so many Americans in one place again. And we were about, oh gosh, we hadn't been there for very long, as I remember it, when our tour guide was pulled away, you know, kind of like that whisper in the ear thing. And he came back after having this something whispered in his ear and he said, I'm so sorry, I'm going to have to leave you here. We're going to have to cut this short. (gasps) And (laughs) what's going on? Well, what had happened is the U S embassies in Kenya and Tanzania had been bombed. Oh my, that minute. Oh my. And I'm just like suddenly covered mm-hmm. in goosebumps. Yeah. We were very fortunate because we found out later that the Ugandan embassy had been targeted as well. Oh my gosh. And the only reason that it hadn't, well, they think that it didn't actually occur was because they were in the midst of moving the U.S. embassy to a new building. So we, we didn't know at the time what was going on. We were ushered out of the building. We took our taxi back to our work site. Uh, we were there on a volunteer trip. And so we just go back to work. And then our, the center where we were working gets a phone call from this representative. And he tells us what had happened. What had happened. And then he gives us some instructions of, you know, don't, don't leave the country. Don't freak out. Uh, don't do anything out of the ordinary. He added, uh, please don't go yelling and dancing through the streets wearing shorts or anything. <laughs> that was top of my list after I got this news was to put on my American flag shorts. We're going to go running through the streets. Yeah. Yeah. In, in scant clothing. No. Um, but it, it was such a shock. And it was... Um, it was this moment where I went into my observer mode 
because I noticed instantaneously there were two reactions. The Americans among us went into fear, shock, sadness, horror, uh, a whole array of emotions, understandably. Yeah. The Ugandans that we were with just went slightly more silent. They were mm. calm. They stayed collected within themselves. I could tell that they were impacted by it, but that they were holding it in a certain way. And holding it very differently. Yes, exactly. And I'm looking at the, the two and thinking, well, I want to do this the Ugandan way. I want to know what it is that enables them to hold this event in such a... I think the word I would use now is sacred manner. And I, I'm sure that it's because they had experienced violence like we never have. And while it didn't happen in their country, it happened close enough. Mm -hmm. They had had experiences themselves to understand what it is like we don't. Mm -hmm. And um, so to be there when this real, I mean, it was such a historical moment. I think for the U.S., it probably wasn't that big of, of a deal because what it's U.S. embassies in, you know, some faraway place. Right, right. <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> uh, there were a couple things about that that really, um, that are, are just burned into my memory. One was the next day we... So phones were kind of an issue at the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, this is 20 years ago. Yeah, making calls back to the States. Not an easy task. Not simple. No smartphone no, in your pocket. No, no. <laughs> they did have email, but it was really expensive. And dial-up. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah. So uh, we go to, I go with one of the other gals in our group to back to the city the next day. Uh, we have to go to a post office. We have to buy a card with a certain number of units on it in order to call back to the United States. We call at like 2 o'clock in the morning. My, my mom was the phone tree start, so she was our point of contact. So I wake her up at 2, two o'clock in, in the morning to tell her that we're okay. Did she know that the bombing had occurred? We we didn't know, but we assumed that the it had news, made international news. Yes, yeah. yeah. She was great. Like my dad got on the phone first, and he's like, "Oh my god, are you okay?" And he's wanting to talk, and I'm like, "Dad, get mom on the phone." She's the phone tree person. <laughs> she's the phone person, and then she gets on the phone, and she's like, "Oh hey, honey." <laughs> she said I was really worried, and then I realized that, you know, it's like the distance between Denver and Chicago and that you're probably okay. Uh, but still, it was very close. While we were out in town, I picked up a newspaper and the front page headline for a U.S. embassy, which had probably more Ugandans working in it than U.S. citizens. The headline reads, 12 Americans killed. In a Ugandan paper? In a, well, it was... It was the story was about the embassy in Kenya, um, but yeah, it's a Ugandan newspaper, and the front page headline is wow. 12 Americans killed." Twelve Americans killed, 
and no mention of and the Ugandan loss of life and here, or the Kenyan loss of life. Right. Yeah. Here's a picture. They have no censorship. So you have this really bloody picture of the carnage in, in Kenya. And there are, there are African bodies everywhere. And the headline, the headline is, says 12, 12 Americans, Americans killed, which for me was significant that it's Americans, not, not the total number of people killed, but also that there were 12 Americans in our group mm-hmm. and that we had been talking the night before about how fortunate we were that the bombing in Uganda didn't go through because that could have been the 12 of us. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't not, we couldn't not think, think that way. That way. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, shortly after that was when I went down with that other woman to, to Cape Town. Um, what had happened? Oh, shortly after, shortly after the U.S. Embassy bombings, uh, the U.S. Uh, it was it was attributed to Bin Laden. The U.S. had gotten some intelligence that Bin Laden was in Sudan. So shortly after the U.S. embassy bombings, the U.S. bombs Sudan, kills a lot of innocent people in Sudan. And the news in Africa at the time was uh, the president bombs another country to get the world's eyes off of the Lewinsky scandal. Oh, wow. So that was happening. All of this news had just come out about their relationship, again, uncensored in the African papers. And so that is the storyline until the bombings happen. And then we bomb Sudan. And then the story that is kind of wavering there is, did the U.S. do this? Just to get us not to talk about Monica Lewinsky. Right. Which is... It was so surreal and weird. Yeah. And then we go down to Cape Town, and a couple of days after I arrive in Cape Town, uh, the Planet Hollywood in... Was it the Planet Hollywood or the um, Hard Rock Cafe? One of the two in Cape Town was bombed as a response to our bombing Sudan. And so there's like this Just in proximity to all this, this ripple effect yeah. happening of all of these bombings and all of these storylines that are floating through. And of course they're out of our American context of what that storyline is. Um, it was, uh, it was just a really weird and fascinating time to be there. How did you metabolize this? Because you said earlier that when the bombing happened in Tanzania and Kenya and you watched the Ugandans and the Americans mm-hmm. get this news mm-hmm. that you went into observer mode. Yes. Did yeah. you stay there the whole trip? I mean, how did you digest this? What you were seeing and mm. that it was so different than, mm. than what you understood the storyline to be from it, the context of the U.S.? Yes. Great question. I, uh, writing. I just did a lot of writing. I've always been a journaler, and so taking that time to process through that, through the act of writing in those journals, was absolutely essential to that. I was working it out and working it through on the page. But 
I was also gathering information. I was gathering stories from other Ugandans. We had this really beautiful night shortly after the bombing. Uh, our host, our Ugandan host, her name was Vivian. And she had us over to her house. I think it might have been the, the same night as the bombings. And that was really just to give us a place of comfort and security and for us to kind of come together and feel stable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Kind of re reground. And, uh, at the time they had, they had like a, a rotating, um, electricity calendar. So she didn't have electricity that night. So we're sitting in her living room with candles and we've got a radio that's on and we're listening for any new news that's coming through. But I don't know how, how it happened exactly, but she and I somehow ended up in her living room alone that night. And I began to ask her about this response. Hey, I noticed the Ugandans reacted this way to this news. And she began to tell me stories about Idi Amin, uh, who was a, a dictator over Uganda who just ravaged the country and some of her experiences that she had growing up in that country, growing up with these kinds of experiences. And that, so that helped me to understand the context of, and essentially the message was, well, we've, we've been through and seen so much violence that when violence happens again, at least this was her story, we immediately go into a place of gratitude. Wow. Now she didn't use those exact words. I'm retelling yeah, the story. Yeah, right. yeah, but this is how you experience. <clears throat> yeah, the um, it it was certainly this storyline that ran through it, of having been through this, we we know what it is, and that's why we so cherish the peace and the security that we have now. And so it was it was both a holding in that in that kind of knowing silence of what that violence is and what other people are experiencing someplace else that we ourselves have experienced. It's empathy, it's compassion, and it's also gratitude for we're here. This didn't happen to us. We have this place. Um, they literally stopped, said a prayer when we got the news, and then they went back to work quietly, but they went back to work. They went about their days quietly. And, um, and it just, it gave me such a picture of resilience and what's precious, what's important. So fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I mean, all of my experiences in Africa have done that in some form or fashion. Um, because I went back to Africa several times after that. And even being in places that were more developed um, people who, who were in a different culture, spending time in South Africa and, um, being with, um, people who come from, you know, an Afrikaner background and who are involved in so many different things. I mean, I've, I just feel very fortunate that I've had that experience across a couple of different parts of Africa. And, um, yeah, there's, there's just something beautiful to learn from all of them. Were you afraid during that first trip 
where you were between Uganda mm-hmm. and South Africa and there was so much violence happening, particularly mm-hmm. targeted at Americans yeah, at that time? Yeah, right, you would think. Um, no, I really wasn't. I, I do remember being in, I think we were in a bus in South Africa. I remember a moment of nervousness being on a bus and wondering, can they tell that we're Americans? And how do they feel about us? Mm. And, but it didn't, it didn't last long. I actually felt very held by the community that we were in, even strangers on the street. You know, I mean, most people were just going about their day. I, it, it could be one of those instances where we were thinking about ourselves more than other people are thinking about us. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm sure that was also going on. There were a couple of people that if we interacted with them, they would ask us, oh, are you American? Yes, we are. And almost every time that I was asked that in South Africa, they said, wow, what a president. <laughs> <laughs> So it was, uh, they, they had something, uh, it was, they were kind of laughing at us. They were, so they were laughing at that story. So 20 years after you went to Africa, I went to Africa. <laughs> and wow, what a president was the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, I'd be so fascinated. Uh, well, I don't know if you've experienced the same thing, but now having had that experience, I I'm I find myself thirsty for what the world thinks is yeah is saying about the same news. I mean, we're very cloistered in our news in America, and I know that's breaking down a little bit with social media. But um, but what's the narrative? Yeah, from what, another context exactly. and another culture and another culture and a more what's removed their, eye. What's their lens on these things? Yeah, it makes me very curious. Mm. How was it to come home from that first trip? Oh, so hard, so hard. I didn't want to leave. No. I wanted to come back home, do my laundry, repack, and then go back. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, I wasn't really pretending (laughs) with that desire. That was, uh, that was really how I felt. And we had been, we had been very well prepped on culture shock before we went, which was really important. And so we had also been told a little bit about reverse culture shock, Mm -hmm. but wow, it hit and it hit hard coming home. Yeah. It was really, really hard. I missed everything about Africa. What was it like for you? What did you go through emotionally? Mm -hmm. Uh, Frustration. I suddenly didn't quite know my place because what had been home for me before didn't quite feel like home the same way. Mm -hmm. I wanted to change things about my life, but I didn't know what or how exactly. And so I started working it out in little ways. Um, I remember I was going, I was in art school at the time and living with my parents in order to go to art school at the time. And I remember telling my mom that I only wanted to eat fresh foods coming back. And she was like, who are you? <laughs> it's my daughter. <laughs> um, I gave away most of my clothes 
because I thought how if, if there are all of these people that can live um, without a huge wardrobe, then certainly I can do the same. And that was my that was my way of honoring and recognizing the way of living that I had seen other people doing in Africa. And so I, I wanted to really pare things down to the essentials, mm -hmm. but it was a really difficult process to know what to pare down because there was, I think for two reasons. One is how do you identify what those things are? And two, there's so much. So I think most people who travel to countries and have that kind of experience, they come back <laughs> what I found is that everybody has a certain aisle in the grocery store that does it to them. Everybody has an aisle. Uh, for me, it was the toothpaste aisle. Walking into the grocery store, walking down the toothpaste aisle, and the whole aisle is toothbrushes and toothpaste. Floss. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The whole aisle, which is exorbitant and unnecessary and frivolous and scary coming from that kind of experience. It was so overwhelming. It just stopped me dead in my tracks. And I thought, I hate the toothpaste aisle <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it was just so much. It was so much clutter. It was so much unnecessary clutter. And so how do you pick out? A toothpaste. When you have this many choices. Yeah, out of that. And suddenly that becomes a new conundrum because it's not about the toothpaste. <laughs> the bigger storyline that now you care about and that you see and, um, <laughs> I mean, it's corny, but we have that joke, you know, you can't, you can't put the toothpaste back in the bottle. Right. And you can't not you can't not think about it now. You can't unhave the experience. And, um, and so it was, it was a long process of parsing out the essentials from the non-essentials, understanding how do I now bring this experience back into the life that I have now. And that took, that took years, to be honest, for me to find a way to reconcile those things. Because what I tried to do was live as if I was in Africa in the United States, and that doesn't work either. That's disregarding our place and our country here in a way that is as disrespectful to this country as it is to go into somebody else's country and say, hey, we're gonna save you because we have all the answers. What a place of tension that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the creative tension to have to hold there was immense. Um, but at that time in my life, it was also exciting because I'm in my early twenties. That's the time when you feel like you have your life to live the way that you want to live it. And so that came into the mix for me. How do I want my life to be, to fully inhabit this newfound activism and how do I now roll that into a career that at the time looked like it was going to follow a path of film and media. <laughs> yes. Set light years apart. <laughs> yeah. And, um, 
And what is my, what does my life look like now? What does my spare time and my free time look like now with that in the mix? Because going to a club and going dancing just doesn't interest me the way that sitting on the side of the street talking with a stranger from another culture does. Um, that was my experience. Yeah. So if you are taking these, and maybe it's specifically from this first trip, or maybe it's from all of your travel to, mm-hmm. to Africa, but if you were, if you were uh, distilling that down for the people who are listening mm-hmm. and you, you came back to uh, that phrase, all I know <laughs> after mm. this experience, after mm. this time in my life, after this mm. season of Africa, mm. all I know is that it is so important to be true to who you are. And I mean really true to who you are, not who we think we are or who we think we have to be. But what actually resides within us, whether we let that out into the light of day or not. And I think that is probably at the core of what that struggle was for me. Was Coming home. Yes, exactly. Coming home from that experience, trying to piece all of these divergent parts together. I think the struggle really was just accepting what was already there and letting that be okay. I think I was trying to fight against so many of those pieces that just didn't seem right. They didn't look right according to our culture, the normal story, um, family, community, upbringing, school, whatever, all of those different voices and forces that come into our picture of what life is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I think I think that was really at the core of what was going on for me was just learning to accept actually I can have a foot in up and coming cutting edge industries and I can care about poverty and people who have so little unjustly and I can be an artist and I can be someone who loves to go salsa dancing and I don't have to love going to a club. (laughs) I can love having a conversation with a stranger. Um, I think, I think that is something that I do know. It's interesting because as I'm listening to you talk, it's kind of like striking me funny because of the color of skin of most people who live on the continent of Africa. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But what I feel like you're saying is it doesn't have to be black or white. Mm -hmm. It can be black and white. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has to be. I don't think we have fullness without it. I think we're missing the picture if it doesn't have not in skin tone, (laughs) but in concept, right, right. Dark and light and in skin tone and in background, um, there is a result, there is a wholeness 
out of all of our parts coming together that cannot be replicated in any other way. And we're missing it. We miss that wholeness for as long as it's not there. I think we're yearning for it. Thank you, Diana. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you being here. So we're going to close today the way that we close every time, which is borrowing from my favorite interview show of all time, (laughs) Inside the Actor's Studio with James Lipton. Ah, (laughs) He ends every interview with Mm. the questionnaire by Bernard Pivo. So we're going to borrow it and use it here. Okay. Diana, what's your favorite word? so hard <laughs> for the lover of words oh that's really so putting hard. you on the spot <laughs> that is what's my favorite word i'm just gonna have to go with my favorite word in this particular moment okay incandescent mm. what's your least favorite word floppy what turns you on creatively, emotionally, spiritually? Other people's light. What turns you off? Hatred. Self or otherwise. Favorite curse word? Shit. <laughs> <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? What sound or noise do I love? I was at the park the other day and there was a bike race happening and I loved the sound of this mass this this glop of bikers swooshing by it's interesting that you like a glop of bikers but you don't like the word floppy I was thinking that (laughs) I thought we were just going to leave it (laughs) (laughs) what sound or noise do you hate (sighs) Uh, screaming What profession other than your own would you most like to attempt? Hmm. Makes me think that there must be a pipe dream answer that you feel like isn't for real, but it's what comes up for you. Oh yeah. I have all of the things that I wasn't that I thought would be fun to be like, like a Broadway dancer. Of course we come back to dancing. This is not complicated. Um, for real, The honest answer right now is a speaker. And that also kind of terrifies me at the same time. What profession do you definitely not want to attempt? Uh, Medicine. Or anything with math. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you added that on at the end. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Hey, you. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that you found this conversation with Diana useful and that it'll inspire you to apply that idea that maybe it's black and white at the same time and search for that wholeness that actually comes from the tension of two things that don't really feel like they may fit together in one person. As always, we thank you so much for listening in. One of the most important things for our speakers and guests 
when they agree to be vulnerable with us about their life experience is to know that what they have to say is going to fall on ready ears, and we couldn't do that without you. Please remember that all of the opinions, ideas, information, and views shared as part of today's conversation belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find each episode helpful and interesting, please note that this podcast doesn't serve as therapeutic intervention, nor should it substitute as advice or direction from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado. We specialize in working with adoptive families and provide support and training associated with attachment and the impact of early trauma on childhood development. If you or someone you love is struggling with adoption-related or relational challenges, find us on the World Wide Web. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you'd like to be a guest on All I Know, please reach out to Jess. You can contact her at jess.alliknow at inwardboundco.com. One more time, it's jess, J-E-S-S, dot know at inwardboundco.com. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. We release a new episode every week. And in the meantime, this is Jen, for all of us here at the show, reminding you, catch all the light you can. <laughs>